Psalm 110, sermon text, first sermon text for tonight, and then Lord's Day 48. We'll read the answers together of the catechism lesson from Lord's Day 48. Psalm 110, read this psalm in its entirety, and then read just three verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Hear God's holy word, Psalm 110, of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. And then going to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you go to page 61 in the back of the blue hymnal, Let's read, there's just one question and answer, 123. 123, Lord's Day 48. Thinking about the second request of thy kingdom come. Let's read the answer together with one voice. What does the second request mean? Thy kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect 
that in it you are all in all. I think I've told you all this before, but over at Hartsfield Village, Reverend Madney gave a lecture series called My Reflections on the Last 100 Years, where he sort of took the last century and looked at it through the the lens of God's sovereignty, through uh, a Christian lens to say, what has God been doing? What are the things that have happened in the world? What can we learn really from the beginning of World War I? through the present day. His dad actually fought for the Ottoman Empire in World War I. So I always am amazed at the, his, the connection he gives us to sort of a different world and a different time. And he talks often, when he's giving these lectures, he talks often about the idea of American citizenship, of being a citizen of a country and, and what that entails. He talks about becoming a citizen here. I think it was in the 1950s, where he took classes and had to pass a test, and they all had to prove that they knew a certain baseline of English, and they had to ultimately take an oath. And it was in support, it, he, he talks about how it gave him this understanding of what it means, that phrase that we find on our money, e pluribus unum, right, out of the many, one, that Really, our strength is found in unity. The the mantra that you hear more often today is diversity is our strength, which really is not true. Diversity in and of itself is not a strength. It's a a neutral thing. It, It may be used for good. It may be used for ill. As American citizens, we come from many different backgrounds. We come from uh, many different parts of the world. But what we must do in order to preserve our country, which is becoming a more and more difficult task in the present, but what we must do is find commonality and work towards this idea of unity, that we have similar values and similar things that we hold up as important. So, even still today, there is an oath that you have to take to become a citizen of the United States uh, if you were not born here. And this is that oath. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. I'll pause there just to give one comment. There's the... uh, book is called, I think it's called Style and Class by Seitz Buning about kind of Dutch experience in America. He talks about how there was sort of this playful thing among the Dutch that they would cross their fingers when they took that oath because they didn't want to bring any dishonor against Queen Juliana or anything like that. But, so, going on. I also uh, take an oath that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me 
God. Right? An oath to support and defend the Constitution. An oath to love the laws of the land and work for the unity that uh, the people of the United States are to work towards if they're to have any hope of, of a future. It's because this is a particular part of the world, a particular people, a particular government, and so we live in this nation, and a nation means something. In a deeper way, the kingdom of God means something, and there are all kinds of things that go along with that. The idea of a kingdom that this is, we're talking about a king and a people and a rule and a government and a way in which to live. There also is connected to that the idea that we are to be working for the good of this kingdom. We are to give ourselves, our energy, our time, our resources, and our prayers unto the good and the health of the kingdom of God. All of that is contained within the very idea of this request, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. We consider this through Psalm 110 and then just these few verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Psalm 110 is a very famous psalm when it comes to psalms that teach about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. It's a psalm that is often quoted in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, And the word priest appears in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word king does not explicitly appear, but the idea of kingship is affirmed in many places. In other words, we are taught here that the Messiah is a king and a priest. That's one thing that makes Melchizedek a really interesting figure in the Bible. He kind of shows up. Genesis and sort of disappears without any explanation as to who he is or what he is. But he was both a king and a priest. In the Old Testament, Jewish religion, when God established it under Moses, kings were not to be priests. Often you would see that in in ancient kingdoms, that a king would assume unto himself this religious role as well. But that was not to be so in Israel. Our modern-day idea of this would be something like a separation of powers. Right? If you allow a king to also be a priest, then all of a sudden one person has too much authority and too much power. God reserved for himself this place of authority, and so he spread that authority out. But the Messiah, prophesied here in Psalm 110, was to be the one who would unite the kingship and the priesthood together into one. And this is what Jesus Christ does. The kingship in the kingdom of God and the ultimate priesthood in the kingdom of God we find in Christ. He rules over us and over our enemies. And we also find in that very same Christ the one who cleanses us from our our sins. So Psalm 110 has a clear and central unifying theme, and it is this, the reign of the Messiah. The Messiah will come to reign. His rule will be three things. It will be peculiar, it will be loved, and it will be universal. His rule will be peculiar. He will rule in the midst of his enemies for a time. This interesting, mysterious kingdom that can dwell in the midst of other kingdoms. 
His rule will be loved. In other words, the people of the Messiah will willingly offer themselves, as we talked about this morning. He won't have to operate as a tyrant does, but rather because of who he is, he transforms hearts to make us willing to give ourselves to his kingdom. And then finally, his rule will be undisputed and universal. Jesus Christ will crush all other authorities fully and finally on the day of his wrath. First then, his rule will be peculiar. This is so in at least two ways. The first way that the Messiah has a peculiar rule, uh, a mysterious way of doing it that's different than the kings of the earth, is first in the reversal of the status of God's people. God takes enemies and he makes them into friends. That's how he builds a people. He takes enemies and he makes them into friends. That is to say, through the Messiah's ministry, sinners become servants of God. This is what has happened to us. Born under the curse of sin, God makes us alive with himself in the new birth. This is shown to us in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If we were enemies, while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Enemies become friends or children. Colossians chapter 1. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Christ was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, alienated and hostile. We have now been reconciled. So God builds a people. He builds a kingdom by taking enemies and making them into friends. The other way that the kingdom of God is peculiar is that it can exist in the midst of other kingdoms. Easier, the, the probably clearest way to think about this is you can think about churches, congregations, as little embassies of the kingdom of God. We welcome people into our doors. We proclaim the word of God. We proclaim the rule of Christ, the reign of Jesus Christ. And we say, here is a a safe place. Here is somewhere you can come to be safe and gain your privileges in the kingdom of God. But every congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in the midst of some other kingdom whether it be the United States of America or in Ghana or in China. Some places the kingdom that is reigning in that land is hostile to the church. In some places it is not. And it is obviously a great blessing when God grants religious freedom. And it can be a great blessing for government to be formed on Christian principles. But ultimately, as God's people, our hope Ultimately, it's not in the United States of America that we've seen a lot of God's blessings come through this great land and this great nation. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. The apostles told us to honor Caesar and to pay him due. 
Christians were not to be revolutionary in their mindset, were they? They were to seek to live a quiet life, even under the reign and the rule of pagan kings. This is because the kingdom for which we are striving is, is not like other kingdoms on the earth. We don't need to have land. We don't, we don't need to have all of the dressings of a normal kingdom because our kingdom is spiritual. It's not to the detriment of material. We look ultimately to the new heavens and the new earth when God will recreate Uh, the heavens and the earth, all of the cosmos for his glory. But here and now, our kingdom is primarily spiritual. Our kingdom is eternal, and it's not temporary. Our kingdom is founded upon ultimate righteousness, ultimate peace, and perfect justice. Any kingdom in this world can only have provisional peace, provisional justice, and halfway righteousness. And so this leads us into what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. We do not battle with the weapons of earthly war as Christians. We come to church, it's not to forge swords and shields and to make ammunition. We are here to arm ourselves with the armor of God, to wage war in a spiritual way. We battle with the means that God has given to each of us in his word, by his spirit, and within the context of the church. The word, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship, and church discipline. All of this is towards the goal of obedient living, as Paul says. We aim to take every thought captive to Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Even there... The idea of taking thoughts captive to Christ. What what does that mean? It means making our minds to exist under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. That even our thought lives exist under Christ's reign and his rule. That he is king over the very things that we think about. That's, again, the kingdom language we see coming to the fore there. And that all plays right into what it means to pray that God's kingdom would come. We are to pray for the kingdom of God. But just briefly, before we move on to that part in the catechism, we should mention that Jesus taught us to pray for the Father's kingdom. He taught us to pray to the Father, and we're to say, Thy kingdom come. And yet, we seem to, almost interchangeably, we think about the Father's kingdom and we also think about the kingdom of Christ, right? for Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of the Son. Are these two kingdoms or are they one? Well, obviously, we're talking about one kingdom, which is a remarkable thing because unlike human dynasties, the Father, God the Father and God the Son, will never pass away. Sometimes you see in human dynasties as the kingdom is being passed or perhaps the Father is... Uh, slow in the process of dying and the son is worried that he'll never have the opportunity to take the throne. But no such pressure, no such tension exists in the kingdom of God for God and his son live on forever. And they are both powerful well beyond any human king and yet they willingly share the glory of this kingdom with each other. The Father is pleased to bestow upon the Son the name that is above every name, 
And the son is pleased to hand the kingdom back over to the father on the last day. But that will not mean that the son takes a back seat. For the father will glorify the son for all eternity in the life of his kingdom. There's this reciprocity between father and son. This mutual glorification and this joy to share in the glory with each other. So it's a peculiar kingdom. It's a rule, the rule of the Messiah, thinking again about Psalm 110, it's a rule that will be loved. Think about that verse, verse 3. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. It's almost as if the psalmist is, is picturing the Messiah and his legions of forces, his armies, and he's saying, what's, what's remarkable about this Messiah is that those who will exist in his train will have within them this deep love for the Messiah. This deep desire to give of themselves to this Messiah and his kingdom and his glory. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. You can imagine a soldier standing on the front lines with shield and and, and sword or whatever. I think a lot about the Civil War soldiers who a lot of them were very young, under the age of 18. You think about looking across the field at what used to be their own countrymen and and probably a lot of doubts arising in their mind. Um, and fear of the, what they are about to experience and not knowing if this is something that they're ready to die for. And there's no such thing in God's kingdom, right? In God's kingdom, the troops are willing on the day of battle. They say, I'm ready and willing to give it all for my Messiah, His rule will be loved and then his rule will ultimately be undisputed and universal. There will come a time when the Messiah King will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, it says, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. If we understand the truth of God's kingdom in that way, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what does it make us do? It makes us live with a desire to bend the knee to that king now. As we read in Isaiah 55 this morning, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Love his kingdom and his rule now. For one day, all will be put in subjection to this king. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for three things. For the beginning of God's kingdom, for the progress of God's kingdom, and for the consummation of of God's kingdom. The beginning of God's kingdom, which is really what I mean by that is not that God's kingdom would be established, but it works outward. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're saying let it start in me and work outwards to the rest of the earth. So when we pray thy kingdom come, the first thing we're praying for is that God's kingdom would come to be known in us. That God's rule would be manifest in us. And how does God's rule come to be seen or manifest in us? Well, chiefly by holy living. The way that you live your life. The things that you do. What you you believe is important. What you value. What you spend your time doing. If we believe God is real... If we believe Christ is a just judge and he will come to judge the quick and the dead, then how could we live in rebellion against him? 
That's that issue of, of practical atheism. What you say in your mouth, you could say one thing with your lips, but what are you saying with your life? If you, if you truly believe that Christ is coming to judge the quick and the dead, do you believe that you will answer for the things that you do? Last week, Reverend Blau brought out that we bring honor and glory to God's kingdom when we live faithfully as he calls us to live. Conversely, we bring dishonor when we live completely out of accord with his word. Thomas Manton says, it is a disgrace to the regal estate of the gospel. In other words, the kingly estate of the gospel for you to be overmastered by lusts and to lie under the power of a sin. You say that you are the servants of a king and yet you serve another. Legitimacy is given to God's kingdom in this, in this earthly, probably more human way. But the reality of God's kingdom is manifest to the world around us when we live in accordance with the king and the king's word and the king's laws. There are a lot of uh, fad diet plans out there. You can always find there's some newfangled thing that's unlocking the, the secret, unlocking the mystery. And in some ways, we all know better, right? We all know that the formula is pretty basic for getting in better shape. But we're always wooed along with this idea that this new diet has the answer. Why? Because they're able to put a bunch of people in front of you who have had success, right? And you hear it at first and you're like, that doesn't sound right. You're just telling me to eat bacon five times a week. But then they parade in front of you a bunch of people who have had success on this diet and you say, wow, wow, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe it actually works. Maybe they are unlocking some kind of secret, brings legitimacy. Now that's kind of a converse example because a lot of times they're trying to trick you. But God's kingdom, you bring legitimacy to God's kingdom, truly living the way that the king commands us to live. And that's where the catechism talks about our neighbors can be won over to Christ, even by the way that we live our lives, which is what God commands us to do. Go forth, live in quiet submission to Christ, and live seeking to honor and glorify him. We need to understand that we will either serve Christ or we will serve the kingdom of sin and darkness. There is no neutrality. On the day of judgment, it won't be Christ's people and uh, Satan's people and then a bunch of people who were kind of in the middle. They were able to stay neutral the entire time. No, either Christ is your Lord or sin is your Lord. And so we pray, let thy kingdom come. Let your reign be known in me. Let me be a person on this earth that shows forth the reign and the rule of Christ. Let me be a person who shows forth the truth that Christ is real and that he reigns. Secondly, we're praying for progress. We're praying for the progress of the kingdom. And, and certainly, probably the, what we most often think about is evangelism, and that's certainly a part of it. Let the gospel go forth so that God would gather his people to himself. That people would come to know God as Savior. That they would find satisfaction and existence in Him. But what I'd like to just have a couple of moments to comment on is what I think something that's lost in this. And that is the well-being of the church. I think we need to do a better job of praying for the well-being, the ongoing health of the church throughout the world. 
the spiritual life of Christians, the safety of congregations, the safety of her ministers. Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So I think a few of the things that we need to pray for regularly for the church throughout the world, both our, our church locally and then our church, the church throughout the world, first is doctrinal fidelity. There's all kinds of errors that can seep into the church. We need to pray that the church would be founded upon the truths of God's word. And we can pray even for reformation unto these things. We need to pray for unity founded upon the truth. Not unity that compromises the truth, but that flows forth from the truth. So many things can get in the way. We see, you read the New Testament and you see that Paul is very concerned about truth. But then he says there's all kinds of division that can, that can slip in. Don't let that happen. We need to pray for the perseverance in the faith of the saints. That all those who confess Christ's name would be kept by the power of God unto the last day. As I mentioned, we need to pray for the life of the ministers of the church. For great harm is done to the church when her ministers fall into sin. And then we need to pray for the holiness of the church around the world. Wilhelmus Abrakel says that we ought to pray to let the church radiate light and holiness. That truly we would be a people separate from the world, living the way that God calls us to live. So we pray for the beginning of the kingdom, we pray for the progress of the kingdom, and then finally we pray for the consummation of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom. The catechism says, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. There needs to be a deep desire a deep desire that God would consummate his kingdom. Because what we're living in right now is a world that has accepted a lie, a world that is living according to a lie. And in the heart of God's children, there needs to be this, this tension to say that there's something that's, that doesn't sit right with us. That's why it's not our home. Because uh, the knowledge of God is not known from sea to sea. It does not cover all of the earth, the glory of God and the knowledge of God in the heart of every man. And something that will be true in the new heavens and the new earth is that every heart will see and will know the glory of God and will serve him day and night. And all that opposes God which is blasphemy. If something opposes God, it is blasphemous. So think about all the blasphemy in our world. All the blasphemy will be destroyed. So that's what we pray for when we pray thy kingdom come. Then as we close, just a couple of comments on our duty to pray this petition. Our duty to pray this petition. We pray thy kingdom come. Why? Because we're recognizing that we cannot do it on our own. We can't make the kingdom come. We can't even make ourselves repent and become living members of the church. So how could we make the kingdom of God increase? So God is the only one who can give increase to his kingdom. Thus we pray because he has commanded us to pray. 
We recognize, when we pray this, we recognize the need to bring ourselves under the reign of this kingdom. As I mentioned, if we don't serve Christ, we are serving the kingdom of sin and Satan. Thomas Manton says, come under this kingdom. If you do not, you will be left under the power of a worse kingdom, under sin and the power of darkness. We're praying it because we understand the value of being a member of God's kingdom. Let thy kingdom come. Let it start in me. Let me be a member of that kingdom. Thirdly, we pray this petition because we recognize our duty to cherish the kingdom like it is our own, like we're citizens. Think about that oath that we talked about at the beginning. Do you love the law of God, just like the citizens of this nation must take an oath that they will uphold the constitution of this land? Do you look at God's word and his commandments and you say, I take on oath that I will uphold the word of God? Do you think of God's people as your family or even like a garden in which you can Uh, help to foster growth. Psalm 16, David says, the saints that dwell in the land are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Do you take delight in the other members of God's kingdom? And do you cherish God's kingdom? Many of you do projects around the home and improving the home. Why? You want to make it look better. You want to be able to enjoy it more. You want to have a, a feeling of peacefulness and accomplishment when you see it. And when you're sitting in your home, God's kingdom and God's house needs a lot of projects and keeping up, right? We need to stay diligent about the work, and we have a duty to do just that. And then when we pray, thy kingdom come, it moves us to walk worthy of the gospel. We are reminded to walk worthy of the gospel, to walk in a way that is fitting with what God has done in us, what he is doing in us, and what he says in his word. In a way, then, it causes us to live as kings. In the book of Revelation, it says that Christ, the reigning Lamb of God, causes us to be kings and priests who will reign on the earth. As citizens of the kingdom of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, abiding in Christ, really what we are called to is a sense of kingly rule through God's grace in our own lives, in our own hearts. Manton says that we are called to live as kings over our own souls. We are to exercise acts of regality, of ruling, of exercising judgment over our hearts. It's the way that we we look inward. At the beginning of every day, we beg God's grace and ask his help. At the end of every day, we look back and we say, where have I strayed? Where did I dishonor my king? Where did I show weakness in my life? When we pray, thy kingdom come, this moves us to walk worthy of the gospel. It fills our life with grace. It fills our life with virtue that allows us to live in accordance with how God has called us to live. So, thinking about the Lord's Prayer and thinking about this petition, we're reminded of its importance. We're reminded of the goodness of praying how Christ taught us to pray. And may we pray continuously with urgency 
Thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your kingdom would come, that it would begin in us, that it would move through the world, that you would uphold the health of the church and bring healing to the church where it is needed, protect the ministers, the officers of the church, protect the profession of all those who believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, keep them unto the very last day. We pray for doctrinal fidelity and unity in the church and that it would be brought forth from your good pleasure and by your power. We pray that the kingdom would be consummated, that we would see the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we pray that you would be pleased uh, to hasten that day and that we too would look forward to that day more than anything else. We pray that you would cause us to walk as worthy members of this kingdom, even though we cannot do so by our own strength. So strengthen us according to your power. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.